Thank you. Uh, when Elvis sent me an email yesterday, he said I won't be there. He said the only regret I have is I won't have Elvis for my special number. <laughs> but we had uh, Jose, Jose Santiago, that's very beautiful. Uh, let's do some housekeeping before I start today. Uh, your pastor is going to be coming on August 10. It's known to us. Uh, Daisy, his wife, grew up as I was teaching the youth in their church. In fact, you have a treat today because the in-laws of your pastor is here. Uh, Cass and Lita Dimalibot, they're sitting right there. We can wave. So... So from what I just said, you can gauge how old I am. <laughs> Pastor Irish definitely just like my kid. Uh, and I guess the culprit who brought me here was uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Tom. Uh, before Elvis gives me a call, but Tom Morrison gave me your name because we don't have a pastor right now. We want to have a speaker. So I worked with Tom. How long were we in the executive committee in the conference? For a while. Can't even remember. Really, really getting old. Uh, I see Gary, and I were, I've sat with Patricia in the education board for the conference for several terms. I see Patricia. I guess Patricia's in uh, Campaquita. Days. I, I don't see. And of course, Joe and, and Rosetta, where I used to work with uh, Eden in the hospital, very close friends of ours. You've already heard 35 years ago, you gave them a gift. So we're starting to date ourselves. Um, so I, I, I avoid asking the questions. How many of you remember? Because every time I do that, the kids look at me and said, Uncle Bing, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> yeah, so it makes you feel really old. Anyways, um, I'd like to share something. Uh, I always ask this question when I'm invited to a particular church. I, uh, I know Donna's Grove, but I'm not that intimately familiar with your needs. The first time I attended this church was when Emilia Knickley spoke. I don't know if you were even around then. You know, Emilio Canigli was the first time in the Adventist chair of the Billy Graham Association. He was here. And then I guess I was invited here for an education Sabbath by Patricia, so I spoke here one second service. And of course, I was also here when Nathan Green was here in the afternoon to talk about the Blessed Hope. Uh, very meaningful to us because my son uh, has three faces in that painting. He modeled for Nathan. He's uh, two angels on one side, and he's the angel giving, I uh, forgot her name, uh, the, the, the girl who died of cancer back to, uh, to, to the mom. Uh, uh, and of course, somebody here this morning, I forgot her name, used to go to Bolingbroke, asked about Justin. Justin is in Forest Lake now. He is the worship pastor of Forest Lake Church. Uh, after he was called from Bolingbrook. Um, so it's a really small world. I, I, I love coming here. So you have a very beautiful church. When we came in this morning, the first comment of Eden was, wow, this is a very clean church. Right? It's a very clean church. Until, of course, God starts focusing on our hearts. And he opens it up. We finally realize that... Uh, it is deceitful above all things. And were it not for the grace of God, we won't even be sitting here. There's a reason why we're here. It's God to save us through his grace. And by his grace, we are able to worship him, to give him glory. So that's what I intend to do today. 
I'll just lift up the glory of Jesus before you. And I hope as you see the awesome power of Jesus and his glory and his grace, that the spirit will move our hearts to worship him and give him the glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Sabbath where we can rest and finally admit, if not for you, we won't be here. Finally acknowledge that it is not our work and our efforts that make us survive and thrive. It's only your grace. Thank you for this rest where we can celebrate. And above all, praise your name. We want to do just that right now, dear Father. May the Spirit move us through your word. Speak to us through the scriptures. Show us the glory of our God that we might truly worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can see that? You know, maybe we can, can we turn off, turn out the lights here? The lights up front, it's going to, it's a very beautiful day outside, so it's bright and it's washing the, the projection. That's okay. That's okay. That's fine. You, you, you can read it anyway. So there was a, there's a Sabbath school class going on, and the teacher wanted to engage the little kids in the lesson study, and the teacher asked, uh, what is brown and furry and eats nuts? And the little boy raises his hand, uh, you know, it sounds like a squirrel to me, but since this is church, the answer must be Jesus. Uh, isn't it very convenient, you know, just, just to be on the safe side, to be church correct, ecclesiastically correct, answer is Jesus Christ. Uh, unfortunately, Adventists are notorious for missing the name of Jesus a lot of times. We know a lot of doctrines, we know a lot of distinctive traits. There's a remnant that led Alan White to write one day, of all professing Christians, Adventists should be foremost in lifting up Jesus Christ. So that the world will no longer say Adventists talk the law, the law, but do not know and preach Jesus Christ. So that's my burden to you today. How many of you have Alexa or Google Home at home? It's cool. So one out of six American families have this artificial intelligence assistant, this virtual assistant, you know. Uh, and somebody made an experiment, and they asked Alexa and Google Home, who is Jesus Christ? And the answer is, I'm sorry. I don't understand the question. They ask uh, Alexa who Muhammad was, Buddha, and Satan. He knew, but not Jesus. That got a lot of Christians perturbed. How come this artificial, this virtual assistant doesn't even know who Jesus is? They started having a protest. Well, let me begin with my favorite quote about Jesus Christ, and I hope you follow this quote. 
The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more. Though time has spread 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the risen, personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yet I was just reading somewhere in the Midwest, they took away the name Lord in the documents of an institution. In fact, a couple months ago in Texas, there was a rally where they crossed out God in the phrase, in God we trust. Because there's an association, atheists in Texas, who are moving towards removing any trace of in God we trust from the face of America. Take it out of the currency, take it out of our, our, our federal buildings, our state buildings. Because we have, live in a culture which is very close to being a post-Christian culture. And yet, C.S. Lewis has put it so succinctly when he said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. You may, as one of the greatest cultures in history in America, try to deny the existence of Jesus and of God, but you're no better than the lunatic trying to scribble darkness to deny the existence of the sun. And it's amazing that Paul says in Colossians, the fullness of God in human form was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. And you will know what it means to worship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a beautiful name is Jesus. I know there was a big controversy about music in the church. Every time you raise music, it's almost like people are at each other's throat in the Adventist church. And yet one of the songs that has been composed of late that has swept the Christian world is entitled, What a Beautiful Name It Is. Written by the Hillsong writers after they had an intense Bible study of Philippians 2. But it says that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they wrote this song. And it resonated. If you don't want to believe me, go to YouTube. You got, what, 40 million views of this song? Because it's very biblical and it's very doxological, very worshipful. I'd like to submit to you that in the passage that we just read, we will see three qualities of God, and I hope as I bring forth these qualities to you, your, your heart will be moved, your hearts will be moved into worshiping who he is. 
we will look at his power, his purpose, and his presence. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That was what John 1.3 says. The word logos in Greek is translated dabar in Hebrew. It means the spoken word that is also an action, the actual thing or matter the word spoke of. When you look at the Hebrew language and you talk about word or speech, it's not just something that you utter. In Hebrew, the moment you say that word, it becomes reality because there's action behind it. And we read in the Bible, what does it say in Psalms 33, 6, 8, and 9? By the word of the Lord, what? The heavens were made. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. For the Hebrew, when God spoke, it became reality. That's why words for the Hebrew is action. It is very powerful. It is power. Let's look at this from a scientific standpoint for us to gain a better appreciation. That's our Earth. Very beautiful from the space shuttle. Now, if we try to zoom out and compare the size of our Earth to the sun, it becomes very small because the sun's sphere would fit 1.3 million Earths. Now, let's expand it some more and look at the entire solar system. It will take light to travel at 186,000 miles per second, 11.6 hours, to go from one end of our solar system to the other. That's the measurement of our solar system. Let's push this some more. If the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is 93 million miles, was reduced to the thinness of a sheet of vapor, the distance between the Earth and the nearest star, which happens to be Proxima Centauri, would be a stack of vapor 70 feet high. This is the universe 50,000 light years away, which gives us an entire view of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. Now you see where the Earth is? Somewhere there on the left side. Uh, I was taking a class of science and scripture under Dr. Gali, one of the more difficult courses I take. We had, I took, I, we had to read three books a week for him, for two units. That was too much. Anyways, one of the books that I read said, when you go to quantum physics and quantum mechanics, it's very difficult to understand these numbers, but let me translate it so that you can understand as a layperson. What you need to do is get a drinking glass, put it outside, and board a spaceship. When you go up in the air and you can see the entire North American continent, look for the drinking glass, and that's the size of our solar system compared to our galaxy. The diameter, 100,000 light years of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. All right, let's zoom out some more. There's the universe within 500,000 light years. You see satellite galaxies here. There's about 10 trillion galaxies in the known universe. Some people say there might be more than one universe. So let's really pull it out now. The universe within one billion light years, multiplying that by the Milky Way's estimated 100 billion stars results 
in a one with the 24 series after it in terms of the number of stars in the universe. Uh, what kind of measurements will we use? I work with IT, and I, I saw Josh here work with McMaster for a while. And these are the measurements we use in IT. You got a megabyte, everybody knows what megabyte is. Now everybody talks about gigabyte. Remember those days when, when a megabyte was very costly? I was looking at the 50th anniversary of the men's walk, men's walk on the moon. You know, they said that project, which 400,000 people was behind the project, to allow us to walk on the moon used two megahertz of power, which is less than the power of your cell phone. But it put a man on the moon walking on the moon. So now today we talk about gigabytes, you know, it's about for 99 cents, uh, uh, what's it called? Apple would give you one gig of, 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 of space, you know, in the, in the cloud, you know that. Then you go to terabyte, you go to petabyte, you go to exabyte, you go to zettabyte, and you go to yottabyte. Yotabyte is one plus 24 zeros. That's the estimated number of stars in the universe. In 2025, according to estimates, a connected person, which is you and me, having a mobile device or a computer, an iPad, will interact with connected devices nearly 4,800 4, times per day, one in every 18 seconds. The world will have 163 zettabytes of data by 2025. That's only a zettabyte. Not a Yoda bite. Brian Smith, a Nobel Prize awardee in quantum physics, Australia, said this I can take the universe back to a second O, that's about 32.7 billion years ago, and give you all the formulas and all the algorithms to take you to the Big Bang, that point of singularity the size of the tip of a pencil that exploded and generated this universe. I can take you there through quantum mechanics and all the calculations that you need. But before that, things become really fuzzy. We have no way to test what came before the Big Bang. That's a big problem. Uh, the new atheist movement led by Richard Dawkins, who, who actually has done damage to the Judeo-Christian consensus in the West, by denying the existence of God, basically says, no, you don't need God for the universe. There's only one problem. How did the universe come into be? Well, the Big Bang. <laughs> you ask the, one of the smartest guys about the Big Bang, oh, I can tell you what the Big Bang is all about, but what happened before the Big Bang, I cannot tell you that. Uh, as one pastor put it, a big bang needs a big banger. And that big banger is God. Neil Armstrong said, it suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, 3D and blue, was the earth. I was walking on the moon. I put up my thumb and shot one eye. And my thumb blotted out the planet Earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. Gagarin, the first cosmonaut that was launched into space by the Soviet Union. And Nikita Khrushchev said, I sent my cosmonaut in the air. He looked for God and he didn't find God. You know what Pastor said? Maybe he should have tried taking off his spacesuit and we would have seen God. 
See, it's Louis Giglio. Everybody knows Louis Giglio, the pastor of Chris Tomlin, who wrote How Great Is Our God. Love him. Uh, when Justin was still with Bolingbroke, they frequented his church to have an idea as to how to do church. A shrinking feeling comes over me. Sin has a way of shrinking God and puffing us up. But just a glance at the universe resizes everything. The God to be worshipped is unrivaled, uncontested of all kinds of might and glory and power and all. In fact, the Bible says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. One Yodabite of stars. And God names them one by one. Probably does it in his pastime. You know what's really interesting? As insignificantly small as we are compared to the universe, it's more incredible that we are marked with majesty for we have been made in the image of God. One yodabyte of stars, trillions of galaxies. Me, puny little me on the earth has been endowed with the image of God. Okay, let's plunge into that. There are at least 27 trillion more cells in your body than there are galaxies in the known universe. Here's a sample picture. On the left side are the two neuron cells of a mouse's brain. On the right side is a simulation of a galaxy. You'll see how close they are. Let's push it some more. On the left side is the stained glass rose window of York Minster Cathedral in Great Britain. On the right side is the top view of the DNA double helix cross section. What does that mean? Oh, before I continue, how many of you know Ravi Zacharias? Everybody knows him. He's one of the great apologists we have. So Ravi Zacharias was invited to give a presentation to John Hopkins University, and along with him was Francis Collins, the guy in charge of the Human Genome Project. Uh, and before Ravi spoke, Francis Collins stood and talked about the human genome. And in the middle of his speech, he showed the slides. After showing these two slides, is what Ravi said. He stopped talking. He got his guitar and started playing a praise song. Awesome. You know how awesome this is? 23 chromosomes from your dad and 23 from your mom merged into 3 billion base pairs of DNA sequenced by God to form you in his image. What does it mean? One DNA, a human genome, I have a human genome, you have a human genome, 3.2 billion DNA base pairs will take 96 years to read if read one character per second. A single strand of human DNA would fill a thousand volume encyclopedia comprising 600,000 pages with 500 words on each page. I'll give you an idea of what I'm trying to, how many of you have cell phones today? I'm, hope, I'm hoping it's in airplane mode or it's in silent mode. You know, what do you put in your phones? We call them apps, right? Do you realize that the technology behind the cell phone and the iPad and the computer is based on binary math just behind one and zero? Just because one and zero was put together in a scheme so that it can generate characters. And as soon as it generates characters, somebody can program an application, you can have your cell phone. And they're doing that to the DNA today. It's mind-boggling. 
He said that in about five years, it will revolutionize medicine because we won't take pharmaceuticals anymore. We will split genes and make the cell of cancer kill itself by telling the cancer cells, hey, you're not supposed to be there. You kill yourself by doing the editing of the DNA. It's amazing. Although there's a concern on the other side, you may have ready-made kids by the time it happens. What kind of kid do you want? I want it to be six feet, to be blonde, to be a basketball. You can program the DNA to do the same thing. That's why there's a whole lot of moral issue there. Anyways, that's not our discussion for today. It's what they do. So you got sugars, you know, the handrails are made, that's why it's called a double helix. The handrails are made of sugar and phosphate, and the hydrogen, hydrogen bonds in between, it's called adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And they have a base rule, you can pair adenine and thymine, A and T, and cytosine and guanine and C and G. Okay, let me, when everything is said and done, is what they said you find in the human genome. ATCG, ATCG, CTCT, all these combinations together, programmed into the human body. That's DNA-based sequencing. Now, I'm close to Joe because Joe is with IT as well. And you know that with IT, you gotta have zero, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, they put that together. Here's an example, I just put DNA. By having an hexadecimal scheme, you put zero, one together, they now have two digits as a base. And D for them is C2, which is 11100. Anyways, the bottom line is if you sequence all the binary numbers and put them into code, you can write programs and we can be automated a world as we are today. Are we able to do that with the DNA? The Human Genome Project is the world's largest collaborative biological project. The major economic countries in the world has contributed to the human genome. And they're trying to develop this to revolutionize the way we see medicine and science today. And they came up very recently what, with what they call CRISPR. CRISPR is a gene editing tool that will allow you, like you edit a computer program, to edit the sequence of your DNA. As soon as this is developed, it will be revolutionary for the way we manage the human body. I, this, all of this are already mind-boggling when you're, when you're reading into this. But Psalms 139 says, For you form my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Of course, my sermon won't be complete unless I show you the pictures of my two grandkids. <laughs> These are two very precious little people to us. And Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. One yodobite of stars, so grand, beyond our comprehension. And yet even the very numbers of your hair is known to God. And you think he cannot handle your problems? Think again. How does James Ford Jr. say it? Hey, quit talking to God about your problems. Talk to your problems about God. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So after looking at the power of God, John 
veers into the purpose of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and what's the next preposition? For Him. When we say through, it's instrumentality. When we say for, it's purpose. There is a purpose behind creation. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So while John was trying to write his gospel which actually dates back before Genesis 1-1, which is in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John says, no, in the beginning was the word. Even before the earth was, the word was already there. How do I communicate this teaching to the Greeks? Why? Because William Barclay says, by AD 60, there must have been 100,000 Greeks in the church of every do who was a Christian. Can you see the ratio? We started with about 120 disciples of Jesus in the upper room during Pentecost. About 60, 80, about 30 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, there were 100,000 Greeks to one Jew who believed in Jesus Christ. So at the task, the task of the Christian church was to create in the Greek world the predisposition to receive the Christian message. What was the thinking of the Greeks? I know you guys know Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But this is Aristotelian cosmology. You got the sphere, you got change, and you got composition. Uh, let me just summarize what these Greek philosophers are saying. They're saying uh, there are four elements, four essences in the world earth, wind, water, and fire. This constitutes what we see around us. With earth, wind, water, and fire, you see life around you. But the Greeks kept on looking for that one essence that will encapsulate all those four essences. That's why they call it, it must be the fifth essence. That's why we come up with the word called quintessence. What's quintessence for? It is the fifth essence that allows you to know exactly why we have earth, wind, water, and fire. That's what we call the logos. The Greek word for reason or plan. The divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. So John said, there you go. There is a concept of word among the Greeks. The word among the, the Hebrews is power. And the creative power of God, he spoke and it came to be. According to the Greeks, there is a purpose behind creation. Let's use Logos and let's try to reach the Greeks. Who was the wisest man who ever lived? Okay, outside of Jesus Christ, Solomon. How rich was Solomon? I was searching, you know, when, you, when, you're, when the word in the dictionary is changed by the name of your company, you're, not, you're successful. You don't say searching anymore. I'm Googling it. That's why Google is one of the richest companies around. You start to Google who the richest man in history is, you know what you see? Solomon. How rich was Solomon? I have no time to expand it to you. Solomon was so rich, silver was common in his reign because everything was gold. Oh, I say this. Bill Gates bought his mom a $1 million car garage. That's just a garage, okay? That's not even a car. $1 million car garage. You know Solomon had over 4,000 garages like those? And all 4,000 garages were solid gold. Bill Gates is nothing. Solomon. So according to the Old Testament, 
There was one of the most expansive research on happiness that has ever happened, conducted by the men who had everything to find happiness. Here's King Solomon. He tried to look for it in possessions, tried to look for it in pleasures, he tried to look for it in projects, and tried to look for it in prestige. All of this, he tried in a very comprehensive research about happiness. And what was his conclusion? Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. So after everything has been done, I was writing a dissertation. Here's my conclusion, says Solomon. The end of the whole matter, let us hear, like the translation of Young's little translation. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is, if you read your King James Version, it says, this is the whole duty of man. That's not a good translation. The real translation is, for this is the whole of man. What is it saying? This is the whole purpose of man. The whole purpose of man is not about you or about me. It is fearing God and worshiping him. What is he saying? I'm looking for happiness. I can't find happiness. The only way to find happiness is to fear God and worship him. That's what he's trying to say. How do I prove that? If you're a typical Adventist, you should memorize this by heart. Revelation 14, 7, after John sees that angel flying in the midst of heaven, he cries out. What does he say? Very close to what Solomon says. Fear God and what? Give glory to him and worship him. So we, we, we try to debate this. What's the meaning of fearing God? Being afraid of God? No, it's very simple, says John. Fearing God is worshiping God. Very simple enough. Why does it make sense? Blaise Pascal said, there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is emptiness, which he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. However, an infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, God himself. This is what InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Campus Crusade for Christ have been calling all these years the God-sized vacuum. Have you heard that? Why is it called the God-sized vacuum? Because in every man's heart is a vacuum, an emptiness that needs to be filled. And he tries to fill that with everything he can think of, but it can never be filled until God fills that vacuum. Illustration. Deion Sanders, probably one of the most celebrated athletes we ever knew as an American people. He was the only athlete who scored a Grand Slam home run in baseball and also scored a touchdown that same week. Played football and baseball at the same time. And the very elusive Super Bowl ring was still in front of him. He wanted to, be, to win the Super Bowl, and it happened. He said, the night we won the Super Bowl. I just finished ordering my Lamborghini, and I lay there in bed thinking every goal I had ever attempted had now been reached. Yet I was emptier than ever before. That was the night I got on my knees. Only God is big enough to fill this heart of mine. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You and I were made to worship. We stop worshiping, we die. We continue worshiping, we thrive. Because God had made us to worship. Third trait presence of God. Heard about his power. Okay. We'd heard about God not only being powerful, 
but also giving us a purpose. Now we find the presence of God. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glorious of the Holy Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The literal translation of this passage, if you were to get the Greek, is the Word became flesh and what? Tabernacled among us. That's why I love John 1.14, especially Adventists who are enamored with the sanctuary doctrine. They think about the sanctuary and the tabernacle. Where do you find tabernacle and sanctuary? You find it right there in John 1.14. Jesus tabernacled. God tabernacled in Jesus so that he, God can be among us. Remember the story in the wilderness? What did God say? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What's the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose of the tabernacle was for God to dwell among his people. Not, not because God can be contained in a sanctuary, but somehow that's a special place where people can look and see God is there. Where does God dwell? If you read Psalms, these are all over, plastered all over the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Where is he? Even if there's a temple, a sanctuary in the wilderness, God is not everywhere there. He said, he is enthroned in the middle, in the midst of the cherubim. Where were the cherubim? In the most holy place, on top of the ark of the God. That's just a kindly glory. That was where God was. How about this most holy place? What does the Bible say? But he said, you cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. Moses said, God, I want to see you. You cannot do that because if you look at me, you're going to die. Say, say, God. For our God is the consuming fire. How did this play out in the Old Testament? You read in Exodus 28, 33, 35. And on its time you shall make belts of gold, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. It, it sounds shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. What did they do? The robe of the priest had bells on the hem. Why? Because once a year, the priest goes into the most holy place, the very presence of God. Only the high priest can do that. Once a year, only. Why did they have bells? So that they'll know when the curtain closes behind the high priest, if they can still hear the bells, the high priest is still alive. Because if the high priest dies, there goes the country. There goes the race. And you know what happened? You know, Tom was talking about your Bible study here every Wednesday on Daniel. And when you start reading Daniel 9, 10, 11, and 12, you see the history of the restoration of the Jews and how they rebuilt the temple and how they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. It's funny when you read Ezra, who has an account of this, he says that, Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Oh, my. When I was introduced, they said, we were members of the Hinsdale Film Church since the foundation of the church. Oh, did we have rejoicing when we had our first service in our building in 59th Street in Hinsdale? This was going on when the people came from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. The first thing they did was to rebuild the temple. And after the temple was built, instead of celebrating, what did they do? What does the text say? They were not just weeping. They were weeping with a loud voice. Why were they weeping when, in fact, the building has been completed? Because the glory of the first temple 
was so immense, a lot greater than the glory of the temple they're looking at right now. So they wept. When will we ever see the glory of Solomon's temple again? And Haggai says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Well, really? The temple of Zerubbabel will be greater than the temple of Solomon? Yes, it was. It came in Matthew 12, 6. Jesus was asked by the people one day, and he stretched out his hand and said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. You know what Jesus was trying to say? Oh, my. You got so buried into the institution, you forgot the purpose of the sanctuary. What's the purpose of that, that, that pernacle? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The purpose of the sanctuary is to see the presence of God. And Jesus was saying, this is a temple. Look at me. This is greater than the temple of Solomon because this is now God before you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What's the meaning of Emmanuel? God. I mean, I hope you're getting the hang of this. We just went to the universe and back and how immense the universe and went into the universe within our bodies, the greatness of God. And then God says, the same immense God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked them, answered them one day when he asked, who, who do you say that I am? Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, what did he say? I am the internal infinitive. He did not say, I was or I will be. I am the eternal, now I am. Where do we first encounter I am? Remember Moses at the burning bush? And then who do I say, God, to the people of Israel, sends me to you? Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The name of God in the Bible is I am. Ego, Amy. It's amazing how this played out. When they were about to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can read this in John 18, Matthew 26. When therefore he said to them, I am, they drew towards the back and fell. I mean, people miss this. When we go to Lent season, they have sermons on the last seven words of Jesus. They miss this part of the arrest of Jesus Christ. Hey, who is Jesus Christ? So Judas goes in there, gives a kiss to the Son of Man so he can be arrested. And then, who is this Jesus Christ? Jesus said, did he just say, I am Jesus Christ? No, if you read the passage, he was not just saying, I am Jesus Christ. He basically said, I am. What he said, I am, that's the title of God. When he said, I am, what happened? What, what, does, what does the verse say? They drew towards the back and fell. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Can you imagine you're in a swimming pool? In a very hot day, you want to be really cool. And everybody's at the swimming pool, and suddenly somebody throws a very gigantic iron ball into the pool. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be waves that's going to flow. It was like a wave. Everybody fell back because Jesus said, I am God. And a lot of commentators were saying, this is the reason why they did not arrest the disciples and kill them. Because when Jesus said, I am he knew that he had power over them. In fact, what did Jesus say in Matthew 26, 53? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You know what that means? What's a legion? That's at least 6,000 Roman soldiers. 
Jesus is saying, 6,000 times 12. My, my father can just summon that number of angels. How powerful is an angel? You go back to the Old Testament. It only took one angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians. What was Jesus trying to say? You know what? If I want to wipe you out, I'm going to wipe you out. The entire Roman army can be wiped out by my father's power. But I'm not doing that because I care for you. I'm going to die for you. So we come into this. I got to give this to you before we end. This is what they call C.S. Lewis' logical trilemma. And can you guys read that? So uh, there's, there's five possibilities to understanding who Jesus is. Did Jesus exist? If he did not exist, he's just a legend. Uh, yes, did he claim to be God? If he did not claim to be God, he was just a leader, like Buddha, okay, like Muhammad. But did he claim to be God? Yes, if he claimed that to be God, but that was a false claim, so he did not know the claim was false, he was a lunatic. He knew the claim was false, he was a liar. But he was son of God, he is indeed Lord. Here's what one writer wrote. Uh, it's entitled, The Confessions of the Secular Jesus Follower by Tom Maker. While I'm thrilled if people can draw wisdom and uplift from any historical figure for me, this is a guy who doesn't believe in God. Jesus is the best source for insight on our ethics and lives. Jesus exists, yes. The most ethical, the best teacher in history, says a skeptic. So Jesus cannot be a liar. Jesus cannot be a lunatic. So if he's not a liar or a lunatic, he must be Lord. So I researched this. This trilemma didn't come from C.S. Lewis. It actually came from Rabbi John Duncan. And this is how it was set forth. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. And I'm telling you right now, while you're sitting there as an Adventist, if you think Jesus was just making up stories and he was a lunatic or he was a liar, then Jesus is not your Lord. But if he was saying the truth and he is Lord, he has a claim over you and a claim over me. All right, so we'll land now. Last week was very special because it was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. How many of you, there you go again, I'm going to date myself. How many of you know where you were? 1969, what were you doing? Can you imagine there were no cell phones then? There are no social media. All you have are radio and TV. If you look at all the pictures in 1969, people were lined up by the department stores just to watch TV. How it is for man to set foot on the moon. What does Neil Armstrong say? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All right? Several missions later, the eighth man to walk on the moon was James Irvin. This is what he said. God walking on earth is more important than man walking on the moon. And we grapple with this now. People say, fine, you talk about God to me. You talk about this Jesus. But I'm having a tough time. My husband was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh, I just lost my loved one. This full of pain and suffering in the world. If God is really God, why in the world are we suffering? 
one of the most difficult questions to answer. So I show you this picture. That's my kid. Justin just graduated with a master's in worship studies in the Weber Institute of Worship in Florida. And one of his classmates was Laura Story. Laura Story finished a doctoral degree in worship studies. You know Laura Story? She composed Indescribable, Mighty to Save, Grace, and Blessings. One of the most brilliant musicians and worship leaders we have today. She was nice enough to have a picture taken with us. I was tempted this close to pry into her personal life. <laughs> I did not. I held back. Because I was very interested. Well, after she gained a Grammy for Indescribable and all the songs that we wrote, and Chris Tomlin sang it, she thought everything was going fine. Until one day, her husband started feeling weird. He found out that he had a brain tumor. They had to take the tumor out of Martin's brain, his, her husband. And you know what happened? Things started snow diving, nose diving after that. Life was not normal anymore. To learn how to feed him, teach him how to walk again, restore his memory. And all of a sudden, her songs took on new meaning. She started writing about God being there, even if it hurts. How many of you have heard the song, Blessings? What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your blessings come through pain? I love this quote from her book. It's a myth that the plan I have for my life is much better than the place where God has me right now. What's the truth? Where God has me right now is the best place for me. However painful, however difficult it is, God has decided that place to be the best place for you because he loves you. That's the power of John 1. He says, you think the world is hard and difficult? I got news for you. God became flesh and dwelt among us so that at this very moment, you can have the presence of God in you. That's the gospel. The presence of God in your life. Oh, it was one of my privileges before Justin left for Florida for him to help me out with the evangelistic crusade in Metro Manila. And we planned all the songs three months before we did the crusade. Uh, we had one of the best recording groups in the Philippines join us. They, they called the Asidors. And one evening when I was talking about the state of the dead and life in Jesus Christ, Andy, one of the soloists, sang the song, When I Cry, You Cry. Have you heard that song? You know, I was asking the question. I preached from John 11. I said, why in the world did Jesus weep when in fact he knew he would raise Lazarus again? Have you ever thought about that? If you read the next verse, you will understand. John 11, 35, John 11, 36. The people say, see, see how he loved him. 
Does God know everything will be okay for each one of you and me? I don't know what your problems are right now while you're sitting there. But does God know it will turn out okay? Yes, but you know what? Every time you hurt, God still hurts with you because that's the presence of God in Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's good news. You don't only worship him because of his grandeur, but you worship him because of his sustaining grace. So let me quote Ravi Zachariah's favorite quote. One of the most brilliant minds who converted to Christianity, his name was Malcolm Muggeridge. And it goes like this. We look back in history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that have been flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I've seen my own fellow countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced, in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who's made the mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a grace crack Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clan announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together. So that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquest, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep our motorways roaring and the smug settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of those Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris of the self-styled sullen superman and imperial diplomatist, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, worship him. You begin the week, worship him in everything that you do. And you will find power, purpose, and the presence of God in your lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for speaking to us today. The words of John still rings true. It's mind-boggling to look at the grandeur of the universe. But what's more incredible is to have the creator of the grand universe Take the form, my form, our form, that we might see your presence. We can only praise and thank you. Give us a heart of worship every day to look at your power, your purpose, and your presence in our lives. 
In Jesus' name I pray.